so fun to have the kids worshiping with us, and we're excited about this new rhythm, and uh, we're all one big family, so it's fun to kind of get to see the full congregation together. So I hope you guys will enjoy that as we move forward with that. Uh, my name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here at Sedaris. Excited to enter into our time of teaching this morning. We're back in the book of 1 Corinthians, so if you've got a copy of the scriptures, turn to 1 Corinthians. If you don't, there's a Bible in the seat back right in front of you that looks like this. And uh, if you grab this Bible in front of you, we're on page 1012. 1012, we're going to be going through the entire fifth chapter of the letter to the Corinthians, a letter in which Paul wrote to a church that he founded, and then he'd since moved on to start other churches, and he's writing back to his church that he loves so dearly. And and just to kind of get us up to speed, maybe you're new with us, um, so much of this letter uh, is really about how to be the church um, and and how to do it well. And so the title of this sermon series we're calling, you see this great artwork up here by Emily, uh, Moving in Step with the Peculiar Wisdom of Christ. So just to kind of reorient us, we took a break last week, and, and many people are new. You may not have seen the introduction sermon. I, I'd encourage you to go back and see that. But we talked about the church being like a murmuration of European starling birds. And so if you don't know what a murmuration of European starling birds is, Ryan, would you just show them this video? Make sure this uh, sound is turned up too, Joseph, because you used to listen to it. Here it goes. Mesmerizing, right? Mesmerizing. Terrifying. Mesmerizing. Can't keep your eyes off of it. You want to know more? How in the world do they live like this and move like this? What's guiding them? Right? All these questions. And in this way, this is what the church is meant to be. It's this picture, this peculiar picture that that, that draws people in to to know more. Who, Who are these followers of Jesus? How is it that they work in such... Unity and unison. I can't, I can't take my eyes off it. That's what the church is meant to be, Paul says. And so if we fail to move in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ, which can only happen when we're all surrendered to the Spirit of God, giving us our direction, will we become this beautiful picture? If not, a few birds decide they're going to do it their own way, come up with their own spirit, or live according to the spirit of the world, that beautiful picture becomes tainted. It no longer draws people in. You got birds falling to their death. It's not good. And so Paul, we've been saying we're leading up to this. Paul's going to have some very stern words for the church that he loves. And we get to those first stern words today. And so for, for many of us in our 21st 
century mindset, we're going to read these words and we're going to think, what? That's the peculiar wisdom of Christ? That doesn't feel loving. That doesn't feel full of grace. But you need to look a little bit closer. You need to understand what Paul and Christ himself are wanting to protect. It's out of love. Love for the bride of Christ, the church. If we do not live together, moving in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ, surrender to the Spirit, we no longer are what God has purchased us to be on the cross. We no longer live in peace, togetherness, as a beautiful picture of the community of, of, of heaven. If we don't live like this, then in fact we'll live in tension and our witness will be destroyed. And so Paul's going to say some very serious things about what needs to happen if we stop moving in step. Now before I read the passage, um, I want to start with a, a, a funny story. It's probably going to be the only light side of the sermon today, so I thought we'd start, but it has a point. I want to tell you about a good friend of mine. He was in my start class uh, when I started working for Deloitte in public accounting. Um, amazing guy, his name's Chad, hails from the great state of Louisiana, hometown Baton Rouge. Chad, yeah, come on, Chad's got a lot, he went to LSU, LSU, yeah, me and Chad were great buddies uh, in my time in public accounting, and um, Chad had a lot of, a lot of confidence, a lot of confidence, and he should, I believe he's actually already made partner in the firm, probably the first from our start class to do that, a lot of confidence, a lot of swagger, Uh, himself, he played football in high school, and one day we were out at the Ghost Bar, top floor of the W Hotel downtown Dallas. I was living in Dallas, Texas at the time. I'm from Seattle. I was living in, in Dallas. Ghost bar, swanky joint, hanging with Chad. Uh, Chad had a few too many uh, adult beverages. So his confidence grew. <laughs> okay, so his confidence grew. In walks to the bar, um, Terrell Owens. And if you're a football fan uh, and you're old enough, you remember Terrell Owens was one of the the greatest wide receivers in NFL history. And at the time, he was playing for the Dallas Cowboys. And he walks into the bar, and he's got, as you might imagine, a bit of an entourage with him, a very large, strong man. And who's Chad got? He's got me. But Chad, he's got some liquid courage. And so, for some reason, I don't know if he thought that Terrell Owens like looked at him funny, or I still, to this day, don't understand what got into him besides what was in him, and he says, I'm going to go talk to that man. He walks up to Terrell Owens, who's kind of like in his own private VIP section, and he just sort of works his way through, and I'm watching back. I did not go with him, by the way. I was like watching from afar, and Chad walks up to him, and he gets up in his face. He says, who do you think you are? (laughs) And I'm watching this from over here. I'm like, what is he doing? And the entourage, you know, he's this is what they call in the business, he's peacocking, he's, he's sticking his chest out, he's, he's, I don't know what he's trying to do, but he comes up to Terrell Owens, a very intimidating figure, and then his entourage surrounds Chad, and I'm thinking, oh no. And at this point, like what a good friend would do would be like, got his back, I did not have his back. <laughs> this is before the days of the cell phone, so I couldn't take a video of it, but I was taking mental pictures. And, uh, 
by the grace of the ghost bar, the bouncers at the bar saw this taking place. They went up to Chad and they removed him from the club. (laughs) You get to get out the club, my friend. And they removed him against Chad's will. Like he fought it. But he's an accountant. (laughs) So it it didn't take much. And they kicked him out the club. And I'll tell you what. That's grace. Because if Chad had not been removed from that moment, I don't know if Chad would be here today. (laughs) It wouldn't have gone well for Chad. He was lucky to get thrown out. And we're going to read now the Apostle Paul. And he's going to say the same thing about the church. That in fact, it's the grace of God that the, the community of Christ, if someone is acting in such a way with arrogance, unrepentance, flagrant sin, that it's the grace of God that, rem- that the church removes them from the worshiping community. And to our ears, we're going to say, how could that be the grace of God? Remember, Chad. Sometimes, Paul will say this, we're lucky that people love us enough to get us out so that we might be restored and come back and not be destroyed. So let's read the passage and you'll see what I'm talking about. 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Paul has just finished a long soliloquy about living according to the wisdom of God and not the wisdom of the world. He said, at times, like a parent in the faith, I might need to come with a rod and discipline so that you might grow and not destroy yourself. So right after he says that, chapter 5, verse 1, he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and the kind of sexual immorality that is not even tolerated among the Gentiles, among the Greeks, among the pagans, you could interpret that, among the nations. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. So this would be his stepmother. And you are arrogant. Shouldn't you be filled with grief and remove from your congregation the one who did this? Even though I am absent in the body, he's writing this from Ephesus, I am present with you in spirit. As one who is present with you in this way, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who has been doing such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, and I am with you in spirit, with the power of our, of our Lord Jesus, hand that one, that young man, over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. He goes on. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little leaven leavens the whole batch of dough? Clean out the old leaven so that you may be a new unleavened batch, as indeed you are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us observe the feast, not with old leaven or with the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote... To you in a letter, 
Paul's written about this before. He's written a letter before. He says, I've written to you in a letter not to associate with sexually immoral people. I do not mean the immoral people of the world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. Otherwise, you would have to leave the world. But actually, I wrote that you do not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or verbally abusive, a drunkard or swindler. Do not even eat with such a person. For what business is it of mine to judge outsiders? Don't you judge those who are inside? God judges outsiders. So, he concludes, remove the evil person from among you. And you can see that last line, if you're reading in my Bible, is bolded, meaning it's a quotation from the Old Testament scriptures. Heavy stuff. To, to, to our Western American Christian ears, we think, how, how could this be? How would this even work? What do we do? There's another church down the street. Is this really what God calls us to? We'll get into all of that. Only the Lord knows how long it'll take me to preach this sermon. But I think it's very important that I give you four opening uh, uh, prefaces, okay? Four of them. Because I know how sensitive this, this could be. Four things that I want to say just to start. Turn with me to six, uh, chapter 6, verse 11. I want to read this to you. I think we've got it on the screen here as well. Chapter 6, verse 11. After going through a very similar list that we just read, um, Paul says this, And some of you used to be like this, speaking of people who were swindlers and the such, sexually immoral and the such. Some of you, and you could even interpret that, most of you used to be like this, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of the living God. So it's so important. So I, want to, I wanted to say this up front, not wait till the end. Paul is not saying anyone who's ever struggled with, with any sin or sexual immorality um, is sort of beyond the church or, or, or not good enough for the church and therefore never to be a part of the church. He's saying, no, we were all like this. And Christ has washed us clean by his blood through the Spirit. So it's so important to remember that. The church is, is not a collection of, of, of perfect people. The church is actually a collection of sinners who have been saved by the gift of God in the person of his Son, Jesus Christ. That's what the church is. So Paul is definitely not, uh, he's not naive that most of the people he's talking to were once like this to some degree or another. So important to remember this. Such were all of us. Thanks be to God for his grace and mercy. The second thing you need to know before we get into this. Um, the word here, talking about the young man, back in uh, verse 11, um, it says a man is sleeping with his father's wife, so his stepmom. Otherwise, he would have just said with his mother. So he's talking about his stepmother. Um, we don't know if his stepmother and his dad are still married or separate. We don't know. Um, he's talking about his stepmother. And he says, is sleeping. So the Greek word here is the present infinitive, which is to say, this is clearly an ongoing active relationship that the young man is in and even sort of 
flaunting to the point that the whole congregation knows about it. So this isn't some sin that he's wrestling with and he's, he, he's stumbling and then repenting and stumbling and repenting. No, he's living a very open uh, relationship, ongoing. It's happening. It's not something that happened in the past, but it's currently ongoing with his stepmother. So important to understand that because what Paul's going to say about what to do with such a person has everything to do with the, the, the ongoingness, the publicness, the, 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 the flagrant nature of this immoral relationship. Third thing, um, read again with me verses 9 to 13 in chapter 5. I wrote this letter to not associate with sexually immoral people. I did not mean the immoral people of the world or the greedy of the swindlers or the idolaters. Otherwise, you'd have to leave the world. So he's saying, <laughs> I'm not talking about people outside the church. I want you, I don't want you to create you know, a commune in the hills where you're away from the sinfulness of the world. No, Jesus wants us to be in the mix, in the places where people need to know about him, which means in the cities, cities like Seattle, cities like Corinth of its day, we need to be here. So he said, otherwise you'd have to leave the world. I'm not talking about that. But actually, he says, I wrote to you not associate with anyone who claims to be a brother or sister and is sexually immoral or greedy or idolaters or verbally abusive or a drunkard or a swindler. Don't even eat with such a person. And then he goes on to say, because God judges those outside of the church, but we do have a duty, if we see sin, to judge those inside of the church. When it's obvious and flagrant and hurting people. So important to see. Paul is clear. So maybe you're not yet a follower of Jesus. And we're so glad that you're here. We're so glad that you're engaging with the word of God and asking, is this true? Is God true? Is he real? Is he alive? Is Jesus his son? Like, we're so glad you're here considering with us. That's one of the reasons we exist. But this is clearly written to those who have said yes to those questions who are a part of a church and are trying to figure out what do we do, how do we live out and move in step with the peculiar wisdom of Christ. So just remember that. We're talking to those who claim to be followers of Jesus, brothers and sisters in a family of God. Paul's talking. He says, for those not yet in that place, I'm not talking to you. I'm not talking to you. He says, definitely keep engaging with those people just like Jesus did. Jesus ate with the worst of sinners in his day. He said, aren't you going to invite me over to your house? He ate with them, with the, with the tax collectors, Zacchaeus. And people said, what is he doing eat with sinners? He's like, I came to heal. How am I going to heal if I'm not near those who need healing? So he's talking about people who claim to have already been healed by Christ, but yet continue. to so talking about those inside the church. So important to remember, we're not talking about outsiders. We're talking about those within the community, within the church. And these churches are not, this isn't a mega church. This isn't a thousand person church. It's probably a church about our size here in Corinth, the only church in town. Third, or um, fourth, fourth thing I just want you to hear and see. Um, could feel, this could feel harsh to you. It could feel like, why, why would we ever do this? But you, you don't have to be a Christian long probably to hear a story of someone whose church didn't do this, who didn't care enough about the people of their church, that allowed sin to run rampant in their church, that has been scarred and wounded and maybe even lost their faith because the church didn't do this. In the last year, I've got two people in my life that I love dearly that the church didn't do this. 
and it hurt them. One is a close relative of mine, and the church saw and knew about, because I emailed the pastor about a young man in their congregation bringing someone who's not his wife to church. And, he did, and they did nothing. And you can't understand the damage that that does to those who are being sinned against. And how it wrecks a community of grace and what's true and what's right and what's good. And it mars the very image of God. We are his body, the church. And so it might seem harsh, but if you know anybody where the church didn't do this, that let, let flagrant, obvious sin run rampant, you'll read this and say, amen, thank you, God, that you care enough about the sinner and the community that you want us to do something about it. This is good news, both for the young man and for the whole church. It's good news that God cares this much to not tolerate arrogant sin in his bride, the church. So with those four introductions, let's ask the tough question of what is this passage telling us to do? Remember with me, if you've been here, in chapter 3, verse 16, Paul wrote this. Don't you yourselves know that you, and he's speaking of all of us together, combined together, all of us, y'all, are God's temple. And the Spirit of God lives in you. If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him. For God's temple is holy, and that is what you are. If that's true, then it totally makes sense. God doesn't want this young man to have to be destroyed to keep his temple holy. He doesn't want his temple to become unholy and stop being his temple and for the spirit to have to leave. That's why you've got to understand the full picture of the word of God. And so, Paul says, it is actually reported. My son Owen's new favorite word, three years old, he says actually in front of everything. If he really wants me to understand how much. Actually, Dad, that monster truck is something I need to have, actually. He just always says, actually. Like, just hang out with him. Be a kid's volunteer. You'll love it. He says, actually, all the time. He says, actually, Dad. Actually, Mom. Paul's saying, it's actually reported. He's saying, I I can barely believe it. He's saying, it's actually reported that there's sexual immorality among you. Now, he's not surprised about sexual immorality. He understands that. But he says, of the kind that not even the Gentiles or the Greeks, or the pagans, the non-God-fearers, that they don't even approve of, that they think is gross, that they think is wrong, that if that was happening in their communities, they would not allow it, and it's actually happening in the church of God. You see this? He, he just can't even believe it. Now, This kind of sexual immorality might seem obviously wrong. And in this sermon, I'm not going to get into 
he uses this same word sexual immorality, pornea, the Greek word, is where we get words like pornography and, and whatnot. But it is like an umbrella for all types of sexual immorality. All sexual immorality is any sexual activity outside of the confines of marriage. So we're not going to get into each specific, but thank you, the Apostle Paul, we'll get to talk about other forms of sexual immorality over uh, the next few chapters, chapters 6 and 7. So we'll get to talk about sexual relations um, with a sex worker. He talks about that. We get to talk, that's chapter 6. We get to talk about sexual relations in marriage. We get to talk about sexual relations in singleness. So stay tuned. And don't just like leave for a month. <laughs> okay, like this is good. Like this is God's going to help us. He's trying to help us uh, move in the peculiar wisdom of Christ. But today we get to start with this sort of seemingly softball question of, is having sexual relations with your stepmother wrong? That's where we get to start. And I'm so thankful Paul starts here. (laughs) Because in one sense, it's obvious to the Greeks that aren't even Christians, and it should be obviously, Paul says, to those within the church. But for some reason, it's not. So is sexual activity with your father's wife, is that considered sin by God? That's the question. Now, how could we possibly answer this question or any question about what is sexual, sexually immoral and what is sexually moral? How could we ever answer a question like that? Now, I want to be very clear here. The answer to how we could answer the question is not, well, it's obvious, right? That is not how you answer a question about Sexual morality or immorality, just whatever's obvious. Even though we have an example of what Paul's saying should be obvious, he's not saying that's why it's wrong because it's obvious. He's not saying that. We can't just use when we're asking these questions, whether it's this week or in weeks to come, well, what's obvious to us? Why? Because what was once obvious is no longer obvious. Okay? And... What was not obvious is now obvious to many. Moreover, what is obvious in one culture now is not obvious in another culture now. Does this make sense? We can go to parts in the world. I just, last week, it was so fun to get to share with you my trip to Athens where we're working with refugees that were coming out of countries like Iran, Syria, Saudi Arabia. And they were... It was not obvious to them. We did a whole, we did a Bible study with a group of Iranians on marriage and how to conduct yourself in marriage. The things that seem obvious to me were not obvious to them. So what do you do when it's not obvious? When obviousness is not a criteria or litmus test for sexual morality? Where do you go from there? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ and his word and living in step with his word is for all people at all times, in all cultures. So we need some way of determining sexual morality that isn't just obviousness, because that's not the same at every time and in every place, even now. So what do we do? How do we determine then if obviousness doesn't solve the problem? The first step. We must establish... It's the first step, two steps. The first step, we must establish that there is a wrong way a selfish way, a destructive way to use your sexual faculties in the world. There is a wrong way. You have to establish that fact. 
And at any time, in any culture, you should be able to establish this first fact. Now, you might not use the same example or the same line of reasoning or the same presuppositions, but I think you can establish this first fact, that there is a wrong way to use your sexually faculties in the world. You say, like, well, that seems obvious. (laughs) It's becoming less and less obvious that that first fact is agreed upon in our culture. But I think with enough work and patience, you can establish the fact there is a wrong way. So once that's established, then we can say, well, what is it? Because if you can get someone to agree that there is a wrong way, okay, good. Now we can get to now step number two. What is it? What is a wrong way to use my sexual faculties? And I think you have five options, five ways of coming to the answer to number two. What actions transgress or miss the mark in using my sexual faculties? Um, number one, pure, unadulterated, expressive individualism, which is to say, whatever I think or desire is sexually moral. That seems to be a clear problem, right? Because we can think of examples of people who have a desire that is wrong. For instance, that would say, I'm only attracted to young children. We see this wrong, so we see a problem. It can't, that can't be the answer, pure individualism. Number two, we could use cultural popular vote. So in any particular culture we can figure out what is the popular opinion about what is sexually moral and immoral. We use the culture's sexual wisdom, or collective wisdom, you would call this. Now, just to be clear, there's never consensus on this. But we could use a popular vote to kind of find the average. And that becomes what we determine is sexually permissible or moral and what's not. Here's the problem with that. Then we're back to the problem of putting on a certain number of people in the culture the morality of the masses or the middle. And different cultures, again, will come to different answers. And so we don't have a cultural ethic for all people at all times in all places, which is what the gospel of Jesus Christ promises us, so that we might have peace, peace in the world, peace in community. This is a picture of heaven. So it doesn't seem to me, at least what I desire, for cultural popular vote to be the way to find it. Number three, allow powerful people or leaders of a nation to choose for us. Example of that would be creating laws. And therefore, as long as you're living within the law, you're being sexually moral. If you live outside the law, you're being immoral. So we've allowed elected officials or a king or something like this to decide for us. Or, another example of this in our country would be, we allow sort of uh, cultural elites, the Hollywood of, Hollywood of the world, decides for us what sexual wisdom is. They have the power, they produce the content, so they get to tell us what is moral and immoral. What's the problem with that? Well, being coerced into what is moral and immoral doesn't seem like the kind of world I want to live in. doesn't seem like the kind of world that God wants us to live in, 
because as we know, not every government is created equal. I'm not sure if we can trust Hollywood to have the kind of wisdom and insight into sexuality that we, as the people, want to agree to. So, maybe number four. <laughs> okay, what's, what's the fourth option? Fourth option would be scientific observation. So we look at the world, we look at sexual faculties, we, we see what leads to the most possible good with the least possible bad, we create a hypothesis of what then is sexual morality. Most good outcomes, least bad outcomes, therefore don't do this with your body, do this with your body, etc., etc. I've got a whole second half of my page, I'm not going to go into it. We, we're going to come back to this, I'm probably going to walk through this in more detail of what's wrong with this form of choosing sexual morality. One, I don't think it aligns with a lot of what the world would say is sexually moral, um, but also it just falls short as technology changes and whatnot. Sexual morality will therefore change, so it's not actually the same. There's no consistency. So we finally come to our fifth option, which is, I believe, the way that the Christian should think about how to define sexual morality or immorality, which is believing that there is a God who has revealed his wisdom in regards to the use of our bodies in sex. This is the Christian approach. Though at times, in this country, all five of these have aligned with number five. There's been times where individualism would lead people to choose this, where the popular vote would lead people to align with God's revealed truth, where powerful people, politicians, even the cultural elites would align with what God has to say about sexuality, and that scientific observation would prove it out in the world. So there are times when these things are all aligned. We're not in that time. (laughs) The Corinthians were not in this time. So what do we do? What does Paul do? He says, let's see what God has revealed to us about how we should use our bodies sexually. Let's try to move in step with the sometimes peculiar wisdom of this God as he's revealed himself in the person of Jesus and by the Spirit and through the Word to help us live our lives in such a way to bring unity and peace to multiply and fill the earth and, and all the good things that he has for us. And it can be confusing, no doubt. But that, the, thinking about those five is important because Paul is going to clearly choose option number five in giving his directive to the Corinthians. He's not going to say, well, it's just so obvious, therefore don't do it. It might seem like that's what he's doing, but that's not what he's doing. Because he's going to quote from Old Testament scripture Don't do this because God has said don't do this and remove them from your midst, not because he thinks it's pragmatic, but because God says remove the person who does this. So we'll get there in just a second. Now, if revelation by God is the way to determine sexual morality and immorality, how do we know which revelation, you might ask? Which is a great question. In a city like Seattle, a pluralistic society, is the Bible the way or the Quran the way or the Book of Mormon the way or... Uh, Which revelation? Which revelation? And Paul is going to clearly say, this revelation, which of course, 
You need to test. You need to look at history. And so even though I'm saying you start with number five, I'm not saying that you don't then work through the other four as a way of seeing how true number five is. So you do that with the Quran, you can do that with the Book of Mormon, you can do that with any sacred writings, and you can ask the question, which one, do some scientific observation, leads to the most human flourishing with the least damage, emotionally, physically, unwanted pregnancy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, scientific observation. You could ask which makes for the best laws that create the most, most good f- kinds of freedom and flourishing in the marriage relationship and otherwise for both men and women. So you can look at that, which laws are the best. You can look at cultural examples of where other sacred writings or opinions work itself out and ask tough questions. So you do all the work of the one, two, three, four, but you start with the five and you work backwards. And then I think what you see is which revelation, this revelation is the most beautiful revelation about what the human body is meant for, what God designed it to be, and how it leads to flourishing and fulfillment in our lives, in the community's life. But it doesn't mean it's easy. Now why go through this long-winded exercise? Number one, it'll be important when we come back to these other sexual ethics questions in the weeks to come. And number two... I just want you to be so clear to to see that Paul is not resorting to any of these other claims. Claims of obviousness, the claims of cultural popular opinion, the claims of this is what powerful people say or, or your government says. He's not saying this is utilitarian reasoning or scientific reasoning of why you shouldn't allow this to keep happening. He's clearly saying God has already revealed how wrong this is And as God's people, you should know this. If anybody should know this, the people of God, the ones who study the scriptures daily, the Corinthians would have been getting together daily. They didn't have the New Testament yet, but they would study the Old Testament. They should have known how clear this is. Let me just show you how clear this is. I'm going to throw four passages up quick, starting in Leviticus 18.18. Throw it up your eye. This is in the Old Testament. This is what they would have been studying when they gathered together like we are. They would have known this. You are not to have sex with your father's wife. She is your father's family. Go ahead, next, next passage. If a man, also in Leviticus, if a man sleeps with his father's wife, he has violated the intimacy that belongs to his father. Both of them must be put to death. This Old Testament, this is severe. Their death is their own fault. Now in Deuteronomy, Moses writes this, a man is not to marry his father's wife. He must not violate his father's marriage bed. Also in Deuteronomy, next, the, the one who sleeps with his father's wife is cursed. For he has violated his father's marriage bed. All the people will say, amen. All the people will say, that's wrong. Like, they should know this, Paul's saying. This is God's law. God has made it clear. He has revealed that a father's marriage is sacred. And and, and a son, even if it's not the biological son, because he would also say, (laughs) there's a long list, he would also say, don't sleep with your biological mother either. But this, he would say, is a form of incest and it's wrong. They should have known that. And Paul says, what are you doing? And all that, all that to say this. This passage has way less to do with calling out the young man who's sleeping with his father's wife because it has way more to do with Paul calling out the debased moral reasoning and lack thereof of the community. That's what this this passage is not written to the young man. This passage is written to the community of saying, What are you doing? What are you doing? 
One, you have a lack of love for this young man, letting him continue on in this relationship that's going to destroy him. Well, that's going to force God to destroy him and remove him in God's way. That's such an unloving posture to take towards this young man. This is what Paul's argument is. Number two, how unloving can you be to the unbelieving Corinthian community who's looking at the church and knows this is happening? It's a small town, comparatively. And it's seeing that this is allowed and, and the church of God had debased is that. Why would I ever want to consider Jesus? How unloving to them is it? And then three, how unloving is it to the bride of Christ that you would allow her to be defiled in this way? Do you care nothing about the church, the body of Christ, the bride of Christ? Christ gave his life for the church, and you're going to let it turn into this? So believe it or not, and and everybody that knows me is going to be like, of course Dave says this. This passage is actually super evangelistic. (laughs) Like this passage is about evangelism. How in the world... Are you not going to take this seriously, Paul says, because it's ruining your witness in the world. It's ruining your witness to this young man. It's ruining your witness to the world. And therefore, we've got to change the way this is happening. How can the church be the light of the world when the church allows this kind of sin when it wouldn't even be allowed in the Corinthian and the, like you got to understand, if you've been the Corinthian society was sexually immoral, like you wouldn't believe. There's one temple up on the hill, the, uh, the Acro Corinth up on a hill. There was a temple where there was upwards of a thousand temple prostitutes, and and sailors would come into town, and it was very common. They would go, you know, this is not like a moral, sexually moral place. And Paul's saying they're not even going to come to your church because you're more immoral than they are. Like you're ruining your witness. How can you be the light of the world when you allow darkness in your midst? How are you going to be a representation to the world? How are you going to be an example of the transforming power of God through the Spirit if this is what you're allowing to happen in your church? You see that? This is very evangelistic what Paul's doing here. He's saying we've lost our uniqueness. We were meant to be set apart and holy like God is set apart and holy. And yet, it's not just that we look like the culture. We, we're even worse Sexually speaking, you've lost your Christness. Now, one thing I want to make clear here is so Paul says, and you, this is in verse two, and, and you are arrogant. And, and when you first read it, you might have thought to yourself, because that's what I thought. He's saying, oh, they're actually bragging about the fact that this young man's sleeping with his wife. I don't think that's what's happening here. He's not saying, like, the tone of the rest of the letter is, is not that they're actually bragging about his sin or boasting about his sin. It's that their general demeanor as a church is that, look at how great we are. Remember, we've talked about that. We have so much wisdom. We have these super apostles who are tell, telling people that Paul's teaching was a little bit elementary and we've got the truth. So they're very puffed up. The word arrogant means puffed up. They act as if they've got it all figured out. So Paul's saying, This is happening in your midst, and yet you act like you're holier than thou, that you're so spiritual and wonderful, when what you should be doing is mourning and lamenting this relationship. See? So it's not that they're bragging about the relationship. It's that they're still very arrogant as a church and think they're so great, even though this kind of thing is happening in their midst. In other words, Paul's saying, 
your posture could not be more out of step with the posture of Jesus. When this horrendous, sinful relationship marks your community, instead of mournfulness, instead of seeking to give this young man counsel and help him get out of this disastrous relationship, you're seen instead to be flaunting your spirituality and your wisdom and how smart you are. Everything we've been talking about for the last seven, eight weeks. He's saying, this is so out of step. You're like the worst marching band in history. You've got people going all directions. They're all playing different notes, off tune. Like, this is terrible. Your witness is terrible. Nobody's coming to this parade. And he's saying, <laughs> fix it. Fix it. So how do you fix it? If, so, if you see someone living in open defiance to the clear sexual ethic as revealed by God, if you see that happening, what should we do? What should we do? Now remember the opening caveats. This sin was very open. They were flaunting this relationship even, perhaps. They weren't hiding it from anyone. He's probably coming to church with his mother-in-law. There seemed to be no rustle. He's not wrestling with this sin. So like many of us in this community, we have sexual sin, and we're wrestling with it. We're not sure how to beat this temptation, and, and time and time again we fall into it, but we always feel remorse, and we, and we repent, and we ask God for prayer, even if we fall into it again. So he's not talking about that kind of sin. This is unrepentant, unrustled with, there's no remorse. He's not, this young man is not asking for guidance, he's not asking for help, he's not asking for counsel. But he's still showing up to church, and, and when they showed up to church, it wasn't like once a week. It was like every day he's showing up. He's eating uh, the communion meal with them, which wouldn't be like we do it here. They would eat a whole meal together, have a whole agape feast together. He was doing all of those things. He was an active participant in the community. He was everywhere. He was a part of everything. And so Paul says, this is what you do in that situation. If he won't stop, if he won't repent, if he won't seek counsel, Paul says you need to remove him. From your assembly, from your fellowship. You need to make it clear to him that we are no longer on the same terms we once were. We are not okay with the lifestyle that you're living, the relationship that you're in. We see it as sin. You are therefore no longer welcome in this community in the way that you once were. This doesn't mean that you never talk to this young man. It doesn't mean that you cut him off and you shun him and and he could never come to you because you need to still be there for him when he comes to realize his error. So that's not what Paul's saying. But he's saying you need to make it so clear that it's, no, like, where it's not just business as usual. Something has changed here. And that wasn't happening. And so Paul, so Paul answers the question, why would you ever do that? And Paul says what? So that perhaps his soul may be saved. On the day of the Lord. What do you care more about? Not hurting someone's feelings or that their soul is saved? That they might stand in front of the Lord Jesus Christ and for him to say, you are forgiven. Thank you for turning to me and repenting even though you lived in this relationship. So that his soul may be saved. Paul says, 
you need to remove him. This is what we call church discipline. That there is a role that the church plays in someone's life that might save their soul. And it's in addition to preaching the gospel and teaching the word, it could mean removing them from the community, the thing that they love, the thing so that they might realize how much they need Jesus, how wrong their sin is and how much it's hurting them. And how does Paul come to this conclusion? This is what I love about Paul. The same way he came to the conclusion that having sex, an ongoing relationship with your mother-in-law is wrong, or sorry, your stepmother, the same way he comes to the conclusion about what to do next. As it is written, that's why you see that bolded verse, as it is written, remove the evil person from your midst. So Paul said, as it is written, this is a sin, as it is written, this is what you should do. God has made it clear what to do. This isn't just his formulation of good advice. This isn't just practical. This isn't him just thinking this is common sense. This is him knowing the word of God and saying God has given us an idea of what to do here. And so we should do it. So it quotes Deuteronomy 7.17 right at the end here. Remove the evil person from among you. That's a quote from Deuteronomy 17.7. Just as he had said as it is written, time and time again up to this point. Remember we talked about that six times, Paul says, as it is written, as it is written. So Paul's been leading up to this saying, I only do what I see the word of God telling me to do. And that's what I teach. And he's very consistent here. As it is written, this is wrong, as it is written. So therefore remove the person. This goes back to the force gump sermon. He's just force gumping it. He doesn't have enough wisdom. This is a, a weird situation. But he's not worried by that because he says, God's given me wisdom. So I force gump it. The word says this. Let's do this. And actually, God said it may save his soul. Just like in the Old Testament, the same is true in the New Testament. So he force gumps it. He does what the word of God is. But then, and this is how we should do it, the word of God tells us this. But then he gives some reasons. He doesn't just leave us and say, well, just the Bible says so, so get over it. He gives us some reasons. What are the reasons he gives us? Reason number one. He brings up this interesting analogy of bread. The leaven. What is the leaven? The leaven, was, it's not the same as just like yeast. We can go to the store and like buy yeast. It's a piece of the bread from last night's uh, a dough that you take off and you set it aside because it has yeast in it. And then the next day, when you're, they would make bread every single day, so they'd get this a lot better than we would. You put a little piece, that's the leaven, and then the next day you mix that leaven into the full dough Take a little bit out for the next day. That's what the leaven is. So the analogy he's giving is, because you're allowing this sinful leaven to be mixed in with all the other dough, it's going to corrupt the rest of the dough. That's why you have to remove it. They would have understood this analogy so clearly. Because every year on the Feast of the Passover, which commemorates the Exodus... They had unleavened bread. So they knew how to remove the leaven and keep it far away because if they got any leaven in the dough for the feast of the Passover, they couldn't celebrate it. They'd get in big trouble. So they totally understood this analogy, which is why Paul brings up the Passover and Jesus being the lamb because this would have been running in their heads. I get what that means. We've got to separate the evil, otherwise it'll corrupt the whole dough. You see that? He's saying the, re- the reason why. So God's told us to do this, so we do it. But we understand, so he gives us some reasons why. And he says, listen, 
There's also proof. There's proof that you've allowed the arrogant sin of this young man to affect the whole community. What's the proof? You're all arrogant. You're all arrogant. Instead of mournfulness for sin, you're arrogant thinking you're not sinful. He's saying, you want me to give me proof that this is happening, that we've mixed in the leaven? Look around. You're all arrogant. I've just spent four chapters telling you how arrogant you are, and you knew it was true. This is what he's doing. He says, I've got proof that the dough has been mixed and that this evil isn't just this one man who sits in this one chair in the church, but it's spread to the whole church. And if you don't see that, if you don't understand that that's happened, this will feel really harsh to remove this young man. But it has happened. It's not harsh. It's loving for the whole community. Then he gives a a second reason. And if the the beauty of the community, if, if the, the evilness of the community means nothing to you, well, maybe the young man's soul will mean something to you. You might be accidentally giving him very dangerous hope. You might think that he knows what he's doing is wrong, but maybe your silence makes him think that it isn't. Maybe he thinks, well, nobody said anything to me, so it must be okay. You are giving him very dangerous hope. Now, I don't know if Paul assumed that this, he was already saved or not yet saved. We don't know. But Paul's saying, please don't give him the dangerous hope to believe that this is what a redeemed, sanctified, spirit-filled person lives like. If nobody says anything to him, if nobody does anything, it's not unreasonable for him to think he's not doing anything wrong. And if you care anything about him, make it clear that this is not okay. And perhaps the way to make it clear is to say, you no longer can, can worship with us and eat with us in the same way that you once did. This is too serious to just employ naive hope that he'll figure it out on his own, that I'm sure this couldn't last. Naive hope is not the answer when dealing with this kind of serious sin. Now, at this point, let me just pause. Almost done, by the way. (laughs) Let me just pause and say, if you're asking yourself the question, this sounds so hardcore. I don't know if this is the kind of community that Jesus would want. I don't know if this is the gospel lived out. What What have we been doing in this series? We've been saying chapter 15 is the crescendo of the whole argument. This isn't gonna be the first hard thing that Paul's gonna say. Or the last hard thing. It's the first hard thing, not the last. And he says all these hard things, but, but underneath it all, the current underneath it all is chapter 15. And what have we said that chapter 15 is all about? The gospel proper, which is that Christ died for our sins and he rose again on the third day and that each and every person that is connected to Jesus Christ by faith in his work, not in their own righteousness or goodness, but by his of righteousness, his goodness, his work, his death, his blood, If we're connected to him, we too will experience a resurrection like he did. It's a whole chapter that talks about resurrection. And Paul says something in in chapter 15 that I think is worth saying here. Look at at verse 36. I think we've got that to throw on the screen. Paul says this. I'm going to just jump in into the middle of this argument. Uh, We might not not have it up there. 
Paul says this. He says, you fool. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. So in his argument about the resurrection, he's making very clear that God brings to life that which has died. Jesus had to die so that he could rise to a new kind of life. We will die to our sin, to our flesh, and, and most of us physically die and be put in the ground. Only then will we rise to this new kind of life. That's what Jesus had to go through, he's saying. That's the peculiar wisdom of the gospel. That's the wisdom for our life as well. Why do I bring that up? The gospel teaches us that this thing that seems so weird and strange is actually the gospel lived out, not the opposite. The gospel lived out is not tolerance for sin. The gospel lived out is sin dying so that new life can rise again. That's the gospel lived out. And we've had the gospel so mixed up in our mind that we think the gospel of love is we just got to accept everyone exactly as they are for everything that they do. That's not the gospel. That's radical individualism. The gospel says things must die so that new life can come up. Chapter 15 is all about that. So Paul is not being inconsistent. He's being very consistent that the gospel teaches things must die. Even a young man might need to be removed and die to the community so that he might come back into the community and come to life in the way it's supposed to be alive. You see that? This is the gospel. Lived out through church discipline out of love for this young man. That if he's not going to kill it himself, we can help him kill it by taking away the, the, you know, the fractional life he's experiencing in the community, put that to death so that he can have full 100% life in the community that comes only with repentance through the blood of Jesus Christ. You see that? This is beautiful. This is good news. This is a gospel lived out. It's not the opposite. Even though our Western 21st century minds, we read this and we are just so confused. Dear Lord, you're looking at me scroll through my notes. <laughs> okay, so I won't get into this. Uh, I, may, I may have Ryan talk about this a little bit next week. But he says, you know, I don't even want you eating with these kinds of people. I don't want you to associate with them. Again, I just want to make clear, he's not, he's not forbidding any interaction with this young man. Because this young man's going to need interaction once he comes to realize his error. But, but in that culture, the culture of hospitality, the way they would do communion even and eat a whole meal together, he's saying you need to make it so clear both to the young man and to those outside the church that this kind of behavior is not acceptable. And so you cannot associate with him. You cannot mix your association and the Lord's Supper with this kind of sin. And so what would this look like in our community? Let me just first say, it's very uncommon. In fact, in seven years of doing church, we've never done this. This could be to our fault, but I just want to say, it's, I don't know. I, I, it's, it's very uncommon, this kind of flagrant, in-your-face sin that everybody knows about. So it's very uncommon. So this isn't going to be happening all the time. But what could you do if you're faced with this clear, flagrant, unadulterated, unrustled with sin of a brother and sister? The first thing Paul tells us in chapter 2. So this is for all of us now. As a summary. This is what we could do. The very first thing we do, verse 2, chapter 5, says, Why aren't you mourning? Why aren't you filled with grief and remorse for this young man? 
When you see sin in the community, we should mourn. That's the very first thing we should do. We should mourn, which is a public lament for the brokenness of sexual relation between these two people. We, we mourn together. And then we should pray. We should pray for this person. Pray for wisdom. Pray for enlightenment. And then we should confront. Two people should go to this young, young man or somebody like this and say, this is not okay, this is not right, this is hurting you and this is hurting our community, this is not okay. Begging them to see the error and repent. Asking them to repent just means to confess and to change their mind and their behavior. And then, only then, do we get to verse 5, which says, Hand them over to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that their spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. That verse, I've saved it to the end, it's so weird to us. This is all that Paul is saying. He's saying, there is a real enemy of God. When you are in the fellowship, when you're in the community, the Lord Jesus Christ is Lord of this domain. There's protection here. This is a safe place. The enemies of God cannot come into this space in the way they can outside of this space. But outside of this space, now you always have the Holy Spirit with you, so as a believer, you're protected. But this young man was coming into the protection of this community, and Paul's saying, it's time to remove them from that protection so that they might experience the full weight of what it means to live in the kingdom of the world, which is the kingdom of Satan, which is the kingdom of darkness, the kingdom of lies, the kingdom of those who oppose God's goodness and good plans for you. Until he feels the weight of that, unprotected by what he's experiencing in the community, he may never come to repent. That's all Paul's saying. He's not saying to curse this person or, or pray evil spirits upon him. He's saying... By removing them, that is, giving them over to the domain of darkness, the domain of Satan, who is a real spiritual force, a fallen angel, who works as hard as he can by some mysterious, sovereign plan of God to help us see our need for God. And God said, this, this young man doesn't see it, so you have to remove him from the protection of the community so that he might see it and his soul might be saved. Only after we mourn and we pray and we confront and we help them, and if there's still nothing then we say Satan will help them see God's goodness. And hopefully then, and Paul assumes this will happen, by the way. If you read 2 Corinthians, he assumes. It seems to be he's writing about this young man in 2 Corinthians, the next letter. He's assuming he came back, right? If you did this, right, it worked. Because God is faithful. God is faithful. As I was thinking about, or going studying this, I just couldn't help think about the prodigal son. Um, Jesus' parable about the young man who doesn't think he needs the father's protection, doesn't think he needs the father's presence in his life, and chooses to go live it on his own. And the father lets him go. And out in the world, he finds nothing but darkness, pain, suffering. He finds no love like he found at home. And the father lets him go. The father lets him go. The father in the story is God. The father in the story is Jesus. He lets him go so that he experiences the cold, dark, horrifying, empty, lonely, unloving reality of the domain of darkness so that he might turn, repent, and see the light that he once knew and come back. And that's exactly what this kind of church discipline is meant to be. We're all prodigals. 
Each and every one of us has fallen short of the glory of God. Each and every one of us has thought that our way is better. Each and every one of us has said, I can do this without the community of Christ, and I've gone. And so many of us have experienced that coldness, that loneliness, that darkness, and we've come back to the light. Praise God, he does it for us all. And sometimes we need to help someone walk away so that they can come back and be here because they know that God is good. Let's pray.